All right, so we've been working through miracles, uh, the miracles of Christ. And I was just thinking this past week, I was thinking about uh, hopefully one of the things that's taken place in your hearts, because I know it has in mind, is like um, we've, we have a magnified view of God. Like uh, sometimes we just need to be reminded of exactly who God is. And hopefully it's been a great source of encouragement for, for you as we've talked about these miracles uh, that we see Christ doing. And this is the God that we serve. That the God that we've been talking about is the God that we serve. That he's the creator. He's the one who spoke the world into existence. But also he's the one who, who spoke to the storm and the storm stopped. You, you know what I mean? So we're looking at people who are, who are healed. We're looking at, um, you know, we're looking at demons cast out. We're looking at uh, all kinds of different things. And we have to be reminded that, hey, the God who did those things is the one who guides us with complete and total reliability. Like that's who our God is. That's the God who's, who's, who's guiding our paths. And he's a God of complete and total reliability. And, and I think it's important for us to, to start there as we begin our conversation tonight because even in distress, this God of eternal power that we've seen week in and week out, um, this God of, of complete and total reliability, like that he's even with us in distress. And, and, and that is completely and totally true, that he's with us in suffering. He's with us in tragedy. But I also was thinking as I've been, you know, just kind of stewing on this passage, I, I was thinking about how um, tragedy, how suffering, uh, like they're the great levelers, right? It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you are. Like it, it levels things. Just, just this week, Saturday afternoon, my wife got a text from uh, the mother of a real good friend of hers. We had just gone to her wedding uh, just this past summer, just several months ago, and uh, they, you know, she was having some headaches and some dizziness and some blurriness, and she goes in and they find a mass on her brain. I mean, she's just a she's a, a young woman, and all of a sudden now she's in ICU. And to de- literally today, um, they were going in and doing surgery and going to do a biopsy and try and figure out what's going on. But but the thing is, is like. In some way, shape, or form, we're all going to experience, it's coming to us. It's, and we're going to be affected by uh, distress. We're going to be affected by suffering. Tragedy in some way, shape, or form is going to come to us. And it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you uh, live in South Mississippi or you live in North Carolina. It doesn't matter if you were born in the United States or if you were born in Brazil it doesn't matter if you come from a very wealthy family or you come from a very poor family. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have kids, don't have kids, married, not married. It doesn't matter. We live in a broken world that's been affected by sin, and so suffering and pain is going to come to each and every one of us. And so we're going to see uh, two very different people in this passage. And so when we look at this passage tonight, we're going to see two people. And they are polar opposites as far as who they are. So Jairus is a man of uh, influence, and he's a prominent man. And the woman that we'll see is a woman who has been overlooked and marginalized. And we'll unpack this a little bit more as we get into the text. 
But we just need to understand that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we're going to see that there's, there's distress for both of these individuals and there's distress for everybody in between. All right, so let's, let's just kind of recap, uh, recap some things. Jesus has been kind of been going back and forth across the, the sea. And so last week, Pastor Tony, uh, he looked at the passage where, um, where Jesus cast out the legion of demons and, and he cast them into the pigs and then they committed what? Suicide. See? All right. It's stuck, Tone. It's stuck. All right. So they, they jump off the cliff and commit suicide. Uh, but what we, what we see is that Jesus, Jesus crossed over the sea to go and see this man. And then he's crossing back over the sea and he's gaining a, a big following. So he's coming back to, uh, coming back to Capernaum. And, uh, and so we pick up the story in, in Mark chapter 5 and verse 21. He's coming back from the miracle that we just talked about last, we just talked about last week. So in verse 21. It says, and Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And so the picture we see here is that there's a crowd basically waiting on Jesus. He's gaining popularity, and people want to be around him. They want to see what he's going to do. They want to hear him speak because he teaches like no other. Like people want to be around Jesus. And so there's this crowd that's assembled, and they're, they're waiting on him because he's, he's gained quite enough following, and they're excited about the fact that he's, he's coming back to Capernaum. Verse 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be well, may be made well and live. So here's here's Jairus. And if you think about who he is and what's going on here, what we see is this public agony of a powerful man. We see the public agony of a powerful man. And so who who is he? Well, it says that he's a synagogue ruler, that this is a prestigious role. This is, this is uh, you know, people would, would want to be in this, in this position. And so what he would do is he would oversee uh, a lot of the affairs that would take place in, in the synagogue. He would, um, you know, he would help organize services. Uh, you know, he, he's in and around and overseeing and helping with the running of what's taking place within the synagogue. And so people would look up to him. And so if he's been in the synagogue, that means he's encountered Jesus. Okay, this isn't the first time that like, he's like, hey, I've heard of Jesus and I'm going to... No, he's, he's already encountered Jesus. But what we need to understand before we move forward is that his natural alliances would have been with religious leaders. So... He wouldn't, the people that he most identified with would have been the religious leaders. It would have been the scribes and the Pharisees who were opposed to Jesus, who had strong opinions about Jesus. And if he's been in and around them, then he would know exactly what their opinions about Jesus were. And the last time I I taught, I said, you know, that that the scribes and the Pharisees, they saw Jesus as as a threat. And so Jairus, he's... He's one of them. He's in their tribe. He's kind of like on their, on their team, if you would you know, want to put it that way. But he's completely familiar with the teachings of Christ because he's been in the synagogue. And so has Jesus. 
that he's seen Jesus doing these miracles. He's heard and seen all the things that are, that are going on. And so he knew where the scribes and the Pharisees stood. And so there's some risk involved with what's going on right here. Number one, there's some humility because here's this man in a position that's elevated, it's prestigious, and yet here he is, he comes and he does what? He didn't come and stand over Jesus, he does what? He fell before Jesus, okay? And so we see that like there's this some humility, but also there's some risk that goes in this. He's got a decision to make. By going to Jesus, he, he stands to lose his reputation and his standing and position in the synagogue. That there's risk involved, but if he does nothing, then he and keeps his standing in his position in the synagogue, then he risks losing his daughter. And so he's in this place where he's got to figure out, okay, what's most important? What am I going to do? Where am I going to, where am I going to go from here? Okay? Verse 24. So this guy, well, verse 23, he comes up and he says, let me just backtrack. I'm going to read verse 23 again. He implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well, uh, may be made well and live. And he, being Jesus, went with him. And then a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. I, um, you know, I've been reading this passage for several weeks now. And when you read a passage over and over and over again, little things begin to stand out to you. Um, I don't know how much this is going to help you theologically, but this could help greatly if you're married or you will be married. Uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about how sometimes I'll have conversations with people. Uh, maybe it's my son, maybe it's my daughter, maybe um, it's, you know, a friend or whatever. And I'll come home and I'll relay that information to my wife. And then she's got a million questions. She wants to know all the details. And I'm like, I didn't ask that. I don't know. And so let me just, let, let's just play a little game here. L- let's imagine that Brian comes home and I'm telling my wife about Jairus and his daughter. Okay? And so I come home and I say, honey, you're not going to believe what happened. Like Jairus' daughter is like sick. And I don't mean just sick. I mean, like she could die. Like this is serious. And of course, her question is going to be well, like, what's wrong with her? I don't know, I didn't ask. She could die. That's really, well, how long has she been sick? Okay, you're asking questions. I don't know, I don't know the answer to. Well, is she running fever? Is it bacterial? Is it viral? Is it, what's going on? You know, is she in the hospital? Is she at home? Is she, and, and a lot of times I'm like, I don't know. I'm never telling you anything again. And she's like, what's wrong with you? you don't, how come you don't ask any questions? No, 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 Amy. Jesus did not ask any questions. Jesus just went. He just went. He just went. So, ladies, we're just trying to be like Jesus. That is all that's taking place. We're just trying. We are just trying to be like Jesus. We don't need the details. His daughter's sick. That's enough. We're going. Okay? And so, uh, anyway, I just, I was, this, this week, man, I, that's been very helpful for me. Just encouraged. I don't know if it encouraged y'all, but it, uh, it encouraged me. All right. And then the second half of that verse says a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And so I, I want you to get this picture as to what's going on. Remember, he's gained a following. People are, people are with him. People are following Jesus. And, and so 
um, I started thinking about like what that must, like how can we think about that today? And, and you know, we, we've, you've probably been in large gatherings before. Maybe you've been to a concert or professional um, game of some sort. You went to a sports game or whatever. Like, um, but, you know, it's not like, unless maybe like when everybody's leaving, I, I immediately thought, because I was a youth pastor, you know, I started thinking about graduation. And if you've ever been to graduation at the Coliseum, it is like people are thronging about you. You know, when graduation is over, um, everybody is just making a beeline to try and get to the, to get to the Coliseum floor. And you got those little bitty uh, stairwells, and everybody's trying to get down the stairwell. Or they're out on the ramps on the outside. But, I mean, there's thousands of people that are trying to get to the middle. And, and listen, if you have a child that goes to public school and will graduate from the Coliseum, can I just give you some, this is free of charge. Figure out where you're going to meet following graduation. Because there's so many times, I'm just walking around like, Families, they can't find their kids. Kids can't find their families. And uh, because it's a madhouse and like people are going through and people are bumping into each other, you're just trying to find your way through the crowd to get to where you're trying to go. Well, that's, that's the picture we see here. Like there is a, a large gathering of people and they're headed all in one direction now. And uh, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit chaotic. All right. But at the head of this, here's what I want you to think about. At the head of this is Jairus. His, his daughter's sick and to the point of death. And so I just kind of, I, I envision him being at the front of the pack, just kind of maybe like trying to clear the way so Jesus can get through. Because um, there's, it, it's not like, hey, we're going to take a leisurely stroll to try and get to my house. That There's some urgency involved in this. And so I just picture him being like, okay, we're gonna, we need to make some space. We need to make some room. We're, you know, this is important. And so just seeing him kind of try to clear the path for Christ uh, as they make their way towards, uh, towards his, his house. And, and as they're on this emergency run, uh, I, I feel like Jairus, he doesn't have a clue that there's about to be this sudden stop, that there's, we're about to hit the pause button, that we're about to hit the brakes. And, uh, you know, we're on our way, but... We're about, to, we're about to have a little detour. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. So we see here the private agony of a powerless woman. So with Jairus, it's the public agony of a powerful man, but for her, it's this private agony of a, of a powerless woman. She is everything that he isn't. Okay? Think about everything that he is, and then she's the complete and total opposite of that. That she's nameless. We have his name. We don't, we don't have her name. She's nameless. She's faceless. Like, there's... Uh, it says here, discharge of blood. We're all adults. I feel like you can figure that out on your own. Okay? But understand that this is a, a medical condition. We know that it's a medical con- condition that, that she would experience just complete, like, you know, for probably the first month or the s- first couple months or the first six months or maybe the first year or, you know, but we're talking about 12 years. And so, like, 
just the daily discouragement and the medical toll that it take the physical toll that it takes on your body but not only that it's a it's a physical issue you talk about the mosaic law and you realize that hold on that it doesn't just have physical implications but now it has these other implications because she would have been deemed ceremonially unclean that she was considered unclean so that means that anything that she touches and anyone that she touches is unclean so if she's married that's her husband If she's not married, she's probably not going to get a husband. It's just too hard, right? She can't be in and around. She can't go to the synagogue. She can't be, you see what I'm saying? So we realize that, hey, this this is a physical issue, but it's so much more than that. For 12 years, there has to be embarrassment that goes along with that, that shame that goes along with that, loneliness that goes along with that. No sense of any kind of normal life whatsoever. It's not, it's not in the cards for her. And then for 12 years, at some point, you realize it's hopeless. And so and what, is it, what does it say here? It says that she tried everything. And it also says, and the point here is that I'm making is, is that she would have been socially isolated and religiously excluded. So she would have been socially isolated because of this thing that she had no control over in in any way, shape, or form. She had absolutely no control over it, but she would have been socially isolated and religiously excluded. But she tried everything. And, and, you know, as I'm reading this text and I'm thinking through and just kind of going through this passage, it seems to me the way Mark lays this out that she was taken advantage of in some ways by, by... uh, you know, doctors and, and people that would claim to be able to, to help her and to, to heal her. I mean, they took her money, but offered her no real solution whatsoever. And so she's actually worse off than she was before she went to see them. And so it tells me that, hey, they, they had no intention of actually helping her. They just took everything that she had. And she's got nothing left except her discharge of blood. That's all that she has left. But she heard about Jesus. She had heard about Jesus. And so there's this this glimmer of hope that Jesus can do for me what nobody else can do. Right? Verse 27. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And so here's her, here's her plan. Her plan is touch and go. Like literally, like I'm going to try and weave my way through this crowd, this throng of people, and see if I can get close enough to Christ. And then I'm going to just see if I can touch his garment. And then uh, have y'all seen the, uh, this is what I envision in my head. Uh, the, is it GIF or JIF? Which one is it? I don't really know. But, you know, like in your phone where you can attach the image to when you want to say something, but you want to say it funny, right? Um, Homer Simpson, when he just kind of backs into the shrubs, right, and just disappears into the shrubs, uh, that's kind of what I envision here. Like, she just wants to get close, touch the garment, and then just disappear into the background. 
Nobody knows a thing. I'm made well. Life is good. I'm completely changed. And it says immediately, like she's healed immediately. And then she tries to just melt back into the background, just disappear. And so immediately is taken care of. Immediately she's healed. And Jesus had done for her what nobody else could. But the thing is, is the, the thing, that, I mean, there's so many things here. But this is, this is the only miracle that we'll, we'll talk about in this, that we will talk about in this series that you'll read about in the Gospels. Uh, it's the only one we have recorded where Jesus performed a miracle that it wasn't his direct initiative. Like he didn't actually do anything. She reached up and touched the garment and she was healed. Because you think about everything that we've talked about. Jesus told the storm, stop. It stopped. Right? He tells, get up and walk. They get up and walk. He casts the demon. He commands the demons to come out. Guess what the demons do? They do what Jesus says. Everything does what Jesus says, but Jesus is just walking along. He's on his way to Jairus' house, and somebody comes up behind him. So it's not this direct initiative where he's... So that just gets me thinking, like, does that mean that Jesus wasn't in control? Does that mean that Jesus didn't know what was going on? That he's just like a... Um, like a uh, a plug in the wall, like a socket in the wall, you just plug into and you can get, you know, a little jolt of electricity and now you're like, what is it, what does it mean? Is he not in control? Well, that's not not at all what's going on. Let's let's continue to read in verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? So next question I have. Did Jesus really not? First of all, people are just coming up and touching Jesus and now they're healed. Does he not know what's going on? And then on top of that, does he not know who just came up behind him and touched his garment? Does, does he know or does he? Is Jesus all-knowing or is he, or is he not? So why is he asking the question? That means if he is all-knowing, which we know that he is, then he's asking the question for, for a purpose. It's not, it's not just circumstance. Like he's, he's specifically asking this question because it's important. Because we've clearly seen, as we've gone through this study, uh, we've seen a few things. One, that Jesus' power is personal. It's not impersonal. We've also seen that Jesus is healing here is, is significant, but it's not sufficient because Jesus is concerned about more than just the physical. And so by asking the question gives the opportunity to do what Jesus really came to do, right? And so that's, that's the reason for the question. And so what Jesus' question does is it brings what had been done in private into the light for everybody to see and to begin a conversation about what is what is most important what is most important one of the things we know too is that um, Jesus's healings are uh, they're intentional they're not accidental that's not on your handout but we need to understand that that his his healings they're very intentional they're not accidental and so this this lady didn't just accidentally come up and touch his no there's intentionality behind everything that that Jesus does and he's not interested in bump and run solutions and so he's going to he's going to continue this conversation verse 31 
And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd, because he asked, who touched my garments? Now think about it. What, remember what we're talking about here. It is, it's throngs of people. We're headed in a direction. Like people are bumping into each other. We're going down the road. Like, like this is, it's not one person going down the road. And so, so he's like, who touched my garments? And, and, uh, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? In verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. I love how he just completely dismisses their question. They're like, you know, he's like, you ask dumb questions, I'm just going to ignore you. Right? I mean, that's just how this is going to, that's just how this is going to go. And I love the fact that the woman didn't come straight forward. And so he's like, okay, well, I guess we're just going to sit here then. And we'll sit here until somebody, until somebody talks. We'll sit here until somebody comes forward. We'll sit here until you goofy disciples quit asking dumb questions. Like, we're just going to sit here because he's very intentional. And so it's important that, hey, we're not moving forward until we settle what's taking place in this, in this situation. And so, again, the intention is not just to make sick people better, but to make broken people whole. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus does. And he cares deeply. Like, he cares deeply about what this woman is having to go through. I mean, that's, that's why he came. But that's not the most important thing. What's most important is making her, her whole. That dealing with the most important issue, and that's a, a sin issue, not a, not a physical issue. And so he wouldn't be moved with these goofy questions, and he wasn't going to, you know, just let her continue to hide in the crowd. And then I started thinking about Jairus in this, in this situation. I started thinking about his daughter. Like, remember, they're on a mad dash to go see her because she's, she's close to death. Right? And so we're cruising along. Everything's good. Okay, Jesus is coming. We got this. Like, we're almost there. And then all of a sudden, we hit the brakes. And it's like, what just happened? And now, it's like, okay, they're asking dumb questions. Whoever did this won't come forward. Like, will you just come forward so we can, you know what I mean? Like, there has to be this sense of, like, I don't know if he's irritated or he's just anxious. or But there's stuff going on in the heart of, of Jairus here. He's, he's wrestling through some things in, in this moment, in this situation. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So she comes, finally she realizes, okay, I got no way out. Like the, there's, I, I, you know what I mean? Like I wanted, this was the plan, touch and go was the plan, but that's evidently plan B is now in effect. And so what does she do? In fear and trembling, she comes before Christ. And so, you know, I, I was I'm just thinking through this, thinking I wonder if, um, I wonder if that's a result of how she'd been treated in the past. Like, like this was somehow her fault. And now here you are, you know that you're ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. That's a hard word. Words are hard. But you, you know that you're unclean. And yet, do you think Jesus is the only person that she touched here? It's a throng. It's a crowd. It's, there's, so she had to make a whole lot of people unclean to get to Christ. Right? 
And so, like, maybe she's thinking that, you know, that, that he's just going to chastise me. He's going to come down on me. I, he's going to punish me like, like I shouldn't have done this. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done this. And maybe this was a bad idea. And I don't know. Like, and she's scared in this moment. And she doesn't know what to do. But she says, okay, well, I'm just going to come. And I'm going to tell the whole truth. And so she falls at the feet of Jesus. And what she finds is not chastisement. Not, not What she finds is compassion. What she finds is healing and so what we see here is a woman who suffered in private was brought into the light of grace she came expecting one thing and she received something completely and totally different she went from being an outcast to being a daughter of the king notice what he says he says you're part of the family he says, daughter. Like, just stop and think. She's, she hasn't experienced in any community for 12 years. It is not, what, remember what we talked about, Jesus is so intentional. That the things that he does are not accidental. The things that he says are not accidental. He is so intentional in what he tells her. is like, hey, you're part of the family. You're part of the real true community now you've experienced something more than just physical healing but you've experienced something far beyond that and because of that you're part of something unbelievably special and it's your faith that's made you well not just physical but spiritual and here's here's uh here's another thought force that um she wasn't touched by just anybody because and actually uh he wasn't touched by just anybody but stop and think about it. like he was touched by a lot of people that day there there were a lot of people that were touching Jesus there were a lot of people that were bumping into Jesus but there was only one person who was healed by Jesus in that moment and so she he wasn't just touched by anyway he was touched by somebody who had faith who believed in Christ and so she believed and so she wasn't like everybody else in the crowd and she wasn't healed because she touched him she was healed because she trusted him that she had placed she had placed faith in Christ that he could do something that nobody else could do and so it wasn't about hey I touched him it was the fact that she trusted him and there's a trust that takes place here she didn't come to the scene with peace but he says go in peace because that's what happens when we become a child of God that we now come to know and understand the peace of God and so she doesn't come with peace, but she leaves with peace. She's made whole because that's what Jesus does, is he restores broken people and makes them whole. But he's a God of restoration. All right, verse 35. Because understand, all this is going on, and it all sounds great and fine and dandy, but if you're Jairus, it doesn't really sound all that great. Like, okay, awesome, let's keep moving. And so while Jesus is saying these things, it says that, that while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. 
And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them, he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So here's, here's the scene. Okay, so while Je- there's a lot of interrupting going on. So while Jesus is still talking to the woman, there, one of the servants comes and says, Hey, don't worry about Jesus. Like, it's too late. She's, she's dead. There's no, no hope. There's nothing else that we could do. And so while they're talking, Jesus basically interrupts and says, Hold on, Jairus. Like, don't fear. You need to just have faith. You need to believe. You need to believe that she's going to be okay. And so in that moment, like, I got a lot of questions. I'm sure he did too. Like, hold on. Like, this doesn't, what you're saying doesn't make sense. However, I just saw that. Let's go, you know. And so Jesus is like, okay, all of us are not going now. Now it's just going to be a few of us. And so he takes Peter, James, and John, and he's like, we're going to, we're going to go. And the, and the parents, and he comes up on scene, and there's, there's a commotion going on. And, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to understand that um, Middle Eastern Jewish grief in this time was very, very different than uh, modern-day Western grief. But it, I mean, it, it could not be any more polar opposite. And so their grief was very public. Their grief was very loud. Their grief was very flamboyant. They, they believed in just letting it all out. Now, for us... We're, you know, now I'm not saying this is the case for everybody, but if you look at our culture as a whole, uh, our grief is way more private than public. Um, It's way more somber. Uh, It's way more quiet. You know, a lot of times, like we, we're going to weep quietly. We're going to weep in private. We're going to come to the funeral and we're going to put our best face on and we're going to try to hold it together for an hour or two and then we'll go home and we'll fall apart. Right? We can't let anybody see any kind of weakness or we have to present ourselves as having it all together. Whatever the reason may be. But the point is, is that this was very common. This was common in their culture that you would see um, a very public display of grief. And it's just one of the ways that they grieved. And so we grieve differently, but um, we, all, we all grieve. It's important. And then, um, you know, he, Jesus makes the comment. He says, she's sleeping. She's not dead. She's She's sleeping. And also in this culture, we need to understand that they, they lived much closer to death than we do. You understand that, that we're way more sterilized as a culture because we have way better medical care. We, you know, when people get sick, they go to the, they go to the hospital. When, uh, you know, they go away oftentimes. For them, it was very much a part of their culture. And so death was an everyday common occurrence. And that would happen right before the family and friends of those that, and so uh, I'm not saying that's not always the case for today, but a lot of times we are way more sterilized when it comes to, th- to this. And so the idea that they wouldn't know the difference between dead and sleeping, they're like, I think we get death and we understand that she's not sleeping, that she's, that she's death. And so there's this laughing. It's almost like he's mocking us like we don't, like we don't know what's going on. And, and Jesus is like, Let's put, them, let's put them out. Let's put them out. And, let's, uh, and then he, he has this conversation. Verse, 40, verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. 
for she was 12 years of age. It's interesting to me that she's 12 years old and then this woman uh, had been bleeding for, for 12 years. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. But I feel like that just doesn't do it justice. You know what I mean? Like their daughter was just dead and she gets up immediately. They're overcome. Yes, they're overcome with amazement. I would be too. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. And so Jesus, there's, there's something I want to I talk for just a moment about is the fact that Jesus takes her by the hand. Notice that, um, that the woman, the unclean woman, that anything that she touched or anyone that she touched would have become unclean. There would have been a process and things you had to isolate and, isolate and you would have been un, become unclean yourself. What does Jesus do when he comes to the little girl? What does the scripture say? He takes her by the... He's now touching a dead body. Which for us, we don't, you know, we don't really think anything about that. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been in the hospital or been with someone and a loved one passes away or been at a funeral when somebody you know, touches the, the body. And like, it's not uncommon for us to, but in this culture, like, you don't touch dead things. You don't touch dead people. Like, you don't, you don't do that because that would, have, that would have rendered you unclean. But the opposite happens here. Jesus touches what is unclean and makes it clean. See, it doesn't make him unclean. What it does is it makes, it made the woman clean and it made this little girl well, alive, not just clean, but, but alive. And so when it comes to Christ, it's, it's not the other way around. It's not that he became unclean, but what Jesus touches becomes clean. We need to understand that, that no one and nothing is beyond Jesus' reach. You know, you'll hear people say all the time, well, I've gone too far. I've done too much. If only you knew what I've done. And I'm like, well, let me just tell you my story right and we could go around the room and let everybody just share their story about all the rotten things that we've done and how that no one is beyond Jesus's reach and that the Jesus is big enough and powerful enough that whatever and whoever he touches becomes clean that's who that's who Jesus is no one and nothing is beyond his reach and so why did he uh why do we, we just kind of end the passage and then I got a few key points I want to, I want to close talking about. But why did, uh, and I, Tony talked about this several weeks ago, because um, there's several times in scripture where um, Jesus will tell them not to say anything, to keep quiet. And he does that here. The last verse, he says, strictly charge them that no one should know this. And he told them uh, to give her something to eat. It's like, yeah, she's hungry. Give her something to eat. But he tells them, hey, don't, don't tell anybody. Give her something to eat. And we're going to scoot on out of here. Well, it's not because he doesn't want anybody to know. Clearly, people are going to know. She was dead. People are going to pick up on the fact, wait a minute. We were just flailing around. We were just loudly grieving. We were coming, un- like, we understand. You were, you were dead. But Jesus is like, hey, you think we have a, you thought we had a crowd on the way over here? You let this get out before we can get out of here. There's no way we're going to get out of here. And so he's just saying, hey, just don't say anything just yet. Let us, let us get on out of here before you, before you share what God has, what God has done uh, among you. All right, so 
so here's, so here's where we land this on the passage, and then I want to un, unpack a few points. But these stories reveal both the love and the power of God. That Jesus cares deeply. He cares deeply about this woman who, you know, was seemingly uh, an outcast and, and marginalized. But he also cared deeply about Jairus and his family who was in a position of prominence. He cared. He cared. He cared about what they were going through. He stopped what he's doing. He, he went. Like we see that he cared, but we also see the power that he that he has and the power that he displays. We can see those things in Christ. So here, here's a couple things for us to think about as we, we close our time together. All right. People were always Jesus' priority. And people are still today Jesus' top priority. Let, let me cl- clear this up, though, because I want to be, be clear. The Father's glory was all, always Jesus's top priority but people man people like jesus would continually we see here jesus just sets aside his schedule he sets aside his plan like it's always about the people that are in front of him like he takes the time for the people that he encounters he stopped even in the midst of great urgency he still stopped for this woman then he went And he went to this house and he went to this family. Like people are always a priority to Christ. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded that it's always about people. It's about people. And so it's about the people that we encounter on a daily basis. And if we're not careful, especially in the culture in which we live, that we are constantly going from one place to the next. And if we're not careful, we can allow our schedules to dictate everything. We can allow our plans to dictate everything everything and we pass by people every single day and we pass by people every single day that God deeply cares about he deeply cares about and if we're not careful we put our schedules and our plans before people and we miss the opportunities that God places before us and so Jesus saw people as an opportunity to glorify the father and so I'm not saying that hey we shouldn't have schedules I'm a planner I love to plan. But what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't hold our plans in our hand with a closed fist. Like, this is my plan. This is what I have to do. This is the way it's going to go. This is, no. Make your plans. Have your schedules. But we need to hold those in an open hand. And if God so chooses to to lead us in a different direction, if he decides to give us a different plan or take that plan, like, we got to understand that, hey, that, that there are people that we're going to come in contact with and the places that we're going and the schedules that we have, like there are going to be people where we're going to be. And we need to be continually thinking about the things that Jesus thinks about when he encounters people. And so we've got to be careful that um, we don't lose sight of the fact that people are always a priority to Jesus. They were when he walked this earth and they are today. And so they should be, uh, they should be a priority to us. Um, God rarely does things the way that we think he should. I, th- I just think like, um, I, I mean, I, I just think how um, the woman in this situation, she probably could think of a thousand other ways other than 12 long years of having to experience this and go through this. Jairus, he, he you know, in that moment when he's seeing what, what Jesus has done, with this woman, 
and he gets word that his daughter has just died in that moment he's got questions he's got doubts he's like well hold on like you you said you were going to go and I know that you can make her well and so like there's these questions and so if we're not careful we have our own ideas about the ways in which we think God should do the things that we want him to do in our life and we want him to operate on our timeline and and do things the way that it makes sense to us but none of this makes sense to anybody in this story you, you see what I'm saying? And so like Jesus, he operates on a different timetable. He, he does things differently than the way that we, we would do things. And praise God. Well, you know what I'm saying? Like there, I'm, there's so many times where I'm just like, I have, you know, I'm questioning things when I'm going through a situation. And then I realize on the backside, it's so much easier to see in the rearview mirror than it is when you're in the middle of it. Would you agree with that? But what we've got to do is we've got to learn to trust God and not trying to push our agenda and our timeline and our way. You notice that I have no doubt, just because I know the human heart, the Jairus is like, there's some things stirring in his heart. But we don't see him in any way, shape, or form say, Jesus, come on. Like, you need to stop. Like, she's fine. Let's go. Like, we 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 don't see that here. That he's just trusting. And so... And then when, when he gets word, Jesus says, hey, he says, don't fear, believe, just trust. And, and Jesus will put us in positions and places where we have to depend completely and totally on him. Where, it's, where we're going to have to trust him when it doesn't make sense to us, when, we, when it's out of our control, when it's out of our, like we are completely helpless and we don't know what we're going to do. He'll allow us to go in those situations so that we will gain a greater trust for him because he's going to come through maybe not the way we want him to not in the time in which we want him to but he's always going to come through and his plans are always better Jesus should be our top priority not our last resort one of the things that I don't know if you noticed here but with this woman in verse um, verse 26 says uh, she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. And so she had tried everything else. She had emptied her bank account. She had tried every, uh, you know, she, I, there's probably no telling what she, what kind of crazy, you know, thing that the doctors told her to do or people told her to do. And there's nothing that, you know, nowhere she wasn't willing to go, nobody she was willing to talk to. And so she had, she had run, every, everything had run its course and all she was left with was, was Christ. And so that was, that was her last resort. That was her last hope. And if we're not careful, we can do that too. We can, you know, when we find ourselves in a, in, in a distressful situation, we find ourselves in a tragic situation, we find ourselves in the middle of suffering, we find ourselves in the middle of whatever it is, like, if, if we're not careful, we can, we can try to just muscle through it in our own strength, and our own power. Or we can just go around to all our friends or all our people. And God's blessed us with wonderful, godly friends. But we shouldn't run to people before we run to God. God has got to be the place where we run to, where we run to first. And then, hey, we should seek good, godly counsel. And we should, we should seek medical advice. And we should do all those things. But the very first thing that we should do is immediately run to Christ before we run to anything or anyone else. And so we can learn, we can learn from that. And then lastly here, um, faith is called faith for a reason. Faith is called faith for a reason. 
Now, before we have this conversation to close things out, I want to be very clear about something. Because some people will completely and totally misuse, um, you know, he, Jesus over and over. This isn't the only place, the miracles we've looked at. Um, we see that Jesus says your faith has made you well. There are some people who would tell you, hey, the reason why you're not better is because you don't have enough faith. The reason why your situation didn't change is because you didn't have enough. Like it's completely and totally based on you or your lack of faith. The reason why you are or aren't in the situation in which you're in. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. And that's not what I'm talking about here. Okay. But there is this discussion of faith that we need to have. That remember both, both of these people took a great risk. Jairus, he, he took a great risk by risking his reputation, risking his position, his standing in the synagogue. Like he took a great risk. The, the opinions of others, the, 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 I mean, just think about all the heckling he would get and all the, like, there would, there's a lot that would come along with him taking this, this risk. And then for the woman just being in the crowd, I mean, clearly she's, it's risky. She thinks that she, the hammer's about to drop on her whenever Jesus is calling her out. So both are taking a, a risk. And what does Jesus point out in both these situations? He says, your faith has made you well. He says, don't fear, believe, have faith. And then Jairus, he responds. And then Jesus does this remarkable, remarkable thing. So faith is in the equation. And faith is the one thing that, that he points out. Because if we're honest... Think about it. What is the one thing Jesus points out? He points out faith. Faith is not the only thing in this equation. It's not the only thing. If I asked you the question, if I said, what caused your car to get to church tonight? I mean, think about it. What caused your car to get to church tonight? Maybe, I mean, is it just one thing? I mean, clearly you had to have a driver. Agreed? So the driver got you here tonight that's what got your car here tonight would you agree with that Uh, yes because without a driver then you know but what if I said your engine got you got your car here tonight well is it the engine yes it is but is it the driver what about what if you I mean you need a key to turn the engine on so is it the key that got you here tonight I mean you got to have gas in order for the engine to run when you turn the key on. So was it, was it the gas? Was it the gas pedal? Was it, you know, I mean, the list goes on and 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 on. Was it the reason? I mean, the reason you came to church? You, you got here tonight was because the reason. Like, I'm going to church. That's the reason I got in my car and I made a left and I made a right. And I, you, you with me? I mean, there's, there's a thousand reasons for how you got here tonight. Well, it's the same thing with these people here. Like, there's a thousand different reasons. I mean, if, if the woman wasn't sick, she wouldn't have been there. So was it just her illness? Or was it faith? Or was it her friend that told her about Jesus? Or was it, you see what I'm saying? It's like, there's the list goes on and on and on. But Jesus doesn't talk, or he doesn't even like say, it's because of me. Which is astounding to me. Like he doesn't say, it's me that's made you well. It's your faith in me that's made you well. And he points to faith and it's like, out of all the things that Jesus could say, he's saying, it's faith. He points out their faith. And then think about, think about those who were closest to Christ. 
And how many times in Scripture we see where Jesus says to them, Oh, you of little faith. In Matthew 6, he's having a conversation with them. They're worried about the basic necessities of life. He's like, what, what are you doing? You have little faith. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, there, the storm is pressing in on them. The waves are crashing over. The wind is, and they're afraid that they're going to die. And what does Jesus say to them? Oh, you have little faith. In Matthew 14, famous passage of scripture where Peter walks on water which man like legit Peter walks on water and then he takes his eyes off of Christ and he starts to look around then he begins to sink and Jesus does what he reaches down and he grabs Peter by the hand probably not what Peter was expecting remember here's compassion and grace I don't know that when Jesus says you have little faith it's scolding Peter in that moment I think it's probably like Come on, Peter, you were just walking on water. You know what I mean? But he tells Peter what? You of little faith. In Matthew 16, when his disciples didn't understand his teaching on bread, he's like, you, you guys, where's your faith? You of little faith. In Matthew 17, when there's a demon-possessed boy, and they can't cast out this demon. And he's like, hold up, guys. Like, where's your faith? You of little faith. And so we see these people... We see Jairus, we see this woman, we see, and he's, and he's commending them on their faith. And yet followers here that are with him in and out in the daily grind of life, like they're like struggling in this area of faith. And he's like, hold on. And so we shouldn't just say that we're people of faith. We should be people of faith. Like that's what we're called to. We should be who we say we are. We should, we should live out this kind of faith that we see in this we see in this passage so our actions should match our words they have to they have to i mentioned in the um i mentioned in the child dedication when i was with the parents this past sunday i said uh, we were just talking about modeling out our faith in front of our our children and you know the old saying that actions speak louder than words um I think both are important. I think both are important, uh, equally important, because I believe Scripture teaches that, that uh, we, we must speak, right? We must, we must live out our faith, but we also, I mean, Romans chapter 10 says, hey, how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? Like, how are they going to know if someone doesn't tell them? And so we're called to speak and to tell people um, of the great hope that we have in Christ, but our actions should match our, our words, and what happens is, is when we when we say one thing and do something different, like it, it's it's met, it, like people are like, well, hold on, is that even a real is that a real faith? Because if it's real faith, then you're going to do what you say that you actually believe to be to be true. And so what happens is, is our our actions prove what we really believe. Stop and think about that. Our actions prove. They give evidence of the fact of what your actions give evidence of what you truly believe. Every single person in this room. I mean, we can say one thing, but what we do really clarifies what we really believe. And so here's, here's the question I have. 
When's the last time you did something that requires faith? Like it's called faith, and it's called faith for a reason. People want to see something that's real. People want a faith that's genuine. What people don't want is people that are just busy on Sunday and Wednesday. People want to see something that is real, something that is genuine. And I'm not saying there are these moments where you're like, okay, I'm believing Jesus is going to raise somebody from the dead. There are going to be these big moments where we have this unbelievable faith and God requires us and calls us to do something that is a tremendous step. But sometimes it's just a small step of faith. And what happens is we begin to walk in obedience and step out in faith just in the smallest of things. Those things lead to bigger things. And those things lead to bigger things. And so what it's about is it's about walking out faith day in and day out. It's about walking in obedience, doing the thing that God calls us to do today. Not waiting for some big thing, but like, okay, well, I don't care how big it is. I don't care how small it is. I don't care if it's in public. I don't care if it's in private. Like if Jesus calls me to do something, I'm going to do it. And the decisions that we make today are connected to the decisions we make tomorrow. Our obedience today is connected to our obedience tomorrow. And so like God has called us to be genuine in walking out faith. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what does that look like? Am I doing anything in my life that requires any kind of faith? Maybe that's, you know, child dedication is, is on my mind just because that's, you know, what we did this past Sunday. But maybe for some parents, it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start studying the Bible with my kids. I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. Maybe it's, I have a friend who's going through a difficult situation I'm not just going to say I'm going to pray for them and then completely forget about it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray with them. From here on out, my, what I'm going to do is when somebody asks me for prayer, I'm going to do like Jesus did. I'm going to stop where I'm going and what I'm doing and I'm going to forget about my schedule and I'm going to forget about my plans and I'm going to look at this person that's in front of me that cared enough to ask enough for me to pray. And I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to let them know, you matter. I care. Let me pray for you. I'm not just going to tell you I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. And maybe that scares you to death. Well, amen. This woman, she's scared to death. She comes and falls before Jesus and she is trembling in fear. I don't know how many times in my life I have been there. And then we say, yes, Lord, whatever it is. I don't know what it is for you. I don't need to know. The Holy Spirit's pretty good at making clear those things in your life, exactly what it is. And so I just encourage us to be people who are people who genuinely live out faith and don't just talk about it, that our actions would match our words.